We are in uh, Mark chapter 6, verses uh, 33 through 52, and then also in part of chapter 1. You've heard me at times use my dad um, in illustrations and examples. I'm going to talk a little bit here briefly about my dad. Some of the lessons maybe that I had learned from him. You may have ref- or you may have heard me refer to my dad by his nickname, Speedy Jack. His name was John Michael Pamprin. Um, I was named after him. He didn't want me named Junior, so we reversed the, the names there. I became Michael John instead of John Michael. But his nickname was Speedy Jack, and he was a bit of a perfectionist. I think if Dave Rancifer were here today, he'd probably say a bit of a perfectionist. Um, Amy probably as well. But um, Dad was a perfectionist. And he got his nickname Speedy Jack because he was anything but speedy. Oftentimes perfectionism and slow go together like peanut butter and jelly. And so my dad had this nickname Speedy Jack. And it drove me batty as a kid growing up. Because... He had a way of doing things where everything had to be done perfectly. I'll give you an example. We did Pinewood Derby cars. I was involved with Boy Scouts growing up. And when it came time to build the cars, if it were left up to me, I would have taken that wooden block, nailed the wheels on it, and sent it down the tracks looking just like that, right? But no, Dad had a different idea because Dad wanted our cars to look like you had purchased them off the shelf at Walmart. And so we would take it. Dad would plan out his design. He would draw out designs for the Pinewood Derby cars. Hand draw them, come up with the specs. Then we would meticulously cut them out in his wood shop. Then we would have to sand them. But we didn't just sand the cars because there are different grades of sandpaper. And to do it properly, you start with the heaviest or the coarsest sandpaper. And you begin to work your way down until you're at the finest sandpaper, which is pretty much like copy paper. It almost doesn't do anything, but that's what we did. And so we would meticulously sand this stuff until it was just smooth. Time to paint, right? No, you couldn't paint it yet, because now you had to seal the wood, which is pretty much like putting glue on it and making the wood feel like plastic. And so we would put on the sealer, and then we would have to sand the sealer until it was smooth. And then we put on a second coat of sealer, and that wasn't enough, because now we had to put on a third coat of sealer. And so we finally got done, all cut out, all sanded, all sealed, and then it was time to paint. But you couldn't just do one coat of paint. You'd have to do at least two, sometimes three coats of paint. Now, along that process as well, Pinewood Derby cars have to weigh a certain amount. I think it was five ounces. Dad wouldn't be satisfied with 4.99 ounces. It had to be exactly five ounces. And so Dad would meticulously, we used lead back in those days. You don't use lead today because it causes, that's part of my issue, causes mental issues, right? So, but Dad would, would weigh that out and measure it and everything else and it would be perfect. Then it was time to put the wheels on. And Dad would take little, uh, must have been like a emery paper or something, and would sand off the, um, what do you call it, the axles, so that they're perfectly smooth. Put it in a drill and then sand the, even the axles themselves. And put that on. And then it would come time to align the vehicle. And you put it on the table and you push it down the table and you watch it. And if that car veered even a tad to the left or to the right, then it was time to readjust the wheels. And so Dad's doing alignments on Pinewood Derby cars. I remember one time I kind of didn't do the best job of painting it, and then I ended up rolling it off the side of the table and took a chip out of it, and Dad made me take and now strip all the paint, re-sand, because that little chip might have caused too much drag. And he's right if it were a 
$50,000 Beamer maybe, you know, and I were on a racetrack somewhere, but he was trying to teach us something with that, you know. Now, to be real honest, um, we, were, we were champs at the Pinewood Derby. In fact, when it came time for the girls here in their shape and race at Polaris, I followed the same things my dad taught me, and one year both of them won the championship or won their, both of their races, and they ended up with their trophies and stuff, all because of dad. Okay? It wasn't me, it was something I learned from dad. Now, that was frustrating for me, it was upsetting for me, because I just wanted to get it done. You know, I just wanted to, to always sort of rush through and just get it finished. Well, I didn't understand that when my dad was doing this stuff. We just saw it as an irritation. You know, we saw it as, what, what's the purpose behind this, Dad? What's the value behind this? Well, I remember one time when I was, I was in college, and I worked at the same paper factory my dad did. And I drove a forklift. And I happened to be down on a part of the, the complex that I didn't usually go to. And I happened to see my uncle, who also worked at the same paper factory. He usually worked during the days, but he was there in the evenings, and I thought that was a little unusual. And so I pulled my forklift alongside him and had a brief conversation with him. And all of a sudden he said, hey, do you realize this is where your dad works? This is his area. In fact, he took me over and he showed me this is where your dad's locker is. I thought that was kind of cool, you know. He says, you know, your dad's got a nickname. And I said, yeah, I know, he's Speedy Jack. I do. Slow, he's pokey, and he's like, but you realize how he got that nickname, right? And I said, well, yeah, because he's really, really slow. The guy, it takes him forever to do anything. And he's like, yeah, but there's more to that nickname. He said, you know, your dad's the guy that they always call in when other guys don't do the job right. And yeah, he's got a reputation of being slow, but it's because he always does it right and never has to do it a second time. Which rang a bell with me because we had this thing that Dad had us do at home. Dad was getting called in so often in his off hours that he finally had to tell us as a family, you know what, when the phone rings, I'm not answering it. Because it's always work calling Dad in to fix something that other guys on their normal shifts didn't do right. And so my dad had developed this reputation of being the go-to guy. If you want it done right, you call Speedy Jack. It may take him a little longer, but he'll do it right. Well, obviously, he's only there one shift out of three, and so there were other guys doing things. And my dad was constantly getting called in on other shifts to fix what the other guys rushed through and didn't do right. That was the moment when, I finally, when it finally dawned on me, wow, Dad's teaching us to do things right the first time so that we don't have to do them again to take pride in what we do. And that's the way he was. Dave Ransiver learned this lesson when Dave and Jennifer and the family came up to Green Bay one time. For a, They spent a week with us up there. And uh, we had a cookout at Pamperin Park, a big park up there. And we took this portable grill and we made brats. brats and I think, there were, I think we must have grilled 50 of them. And so that thing was destroyed. Just caked with grease and burnt on stuff from cooking the brats, you know. Well, we came home and dropped the stuff off and Dave and I went off and I think went shopping or did something like that and we came back home and about three hours later my dad was sitting out on the deck cleaning off that grill and by the time we got there it looked like it was brand new. He was out there with with um, some steel wool and some other things and Dave walked in and he looked at me and he goes did we even use that grill? And he still talks about it sometimes. I sent him a picture last summer when I was up there because I cleaned off the same grill you know and it looked pretty good. Not quite as like my dad. I sent it to Dave and he kind of laughed because that was my dad. He wanted that grill to be perfect for the next time he used it, you know. So why, why do I share that story? I share that story because today we're going to be looking at some examples of where 
Jesus had been attempting to teach the disciples something, and they just didn't get it. It just didn't dawn on them what he was trying to teach them. And it has to do specifically with John or with Mark's purpose in the Gospel here. Remember, he had two purposes. One was to show that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The second was to show that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so, Jesus did a number of things to demonstrate these two things. We're in Mark chapter 6 today. We're going to be looking at primarily two events. There's actually four, but two of them are primary these two events here are the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. You'll notice, however, that these two particular events didn't happen right after one another. There were some things that separate them. But we're going to take them together today, one after the other. But they're, they're separated. And the reason I'm going to do that, the reason I'm going to take both this, and then, or take the feeding of the 5,000, and then jump over to the feeding of the 4,000, is because Jesus used both of those events for a very specific purpose. And it's going to be easier for us to see that purpose if we just treat them together today. Okay? But we're also going to look at two smaller events that actually tell us what the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 were really about. So there's a total of four events we're going to look at today, but primarily the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Let's go to Mark chapter 6, just briefly verse 14, because that'll, that'll kick us off. You remember that the people that had been seeing Jesus operate and seeing him minister didn't quite know what to make of him. Remember that the section that we started last week, chapter 6 verse 14, that begins a section that goes all the way into chapter 8. It starts with this concept or this idea, who do the people think Jesus is? And it will end with Jesus asking the disciples that very question, who do the people say I am and who do you say that I am? And so those are the bookends to this large section that will be in for a couple of weeks now. Who is this Jesus guy? Who do people think I am? And then ultimately ending with Peter saying, you are the Christ. Finally getting it right. The problem is, he didn't quite get it right before then. Even with these two examples that we're going to look at today. So we see that in the beginning of chapter 6, verse 14, where, I'll let you read this on your own again, we did it last week, but basically the people looked at Jesus and they said, well, um, he might be the reincarnated John the Baptist. Or, well, he might be um, a return of Elijah the prophet. Or he might just be some other prophet. But none of them seem to think or recognize that Jesus Christ was both the Messiah and the Son of God. They seem to have missed that. But what about his inner circle? What about the men that spent their days and nights with him? In fact, one of the things we'll see today is that they were crossing the, the, um, the lake at 3 o'clock in the morning. These guys were with Jesus morning, noon, and night. What did they think? They were intimately familiar with his teaching. Not just what he publicly taught, but what he taught them privately. He had private conversations with them. They were with him when he cast out demons. He healed the sick. They were personally experiencing his awesome power and his authority firsthand. They were right there with him. They had even experienced the power themselves because when Jesus sent them out, he gave them authority to cast out demons. So here they are, casting out demons and healing people, experiencing the power of this guy that they had been with all by themselves. So if anything, they should have understood, they should have known who Jesus was, right? That takes us to Mark chapter 6, verse 33, in the beginning of our passage, really, for today. 
the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to read this for you. It starts in verse 33. It says, The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were, with, or they were sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, he broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them as well. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. So let's just break this down briefly here. The first thing that we look at here is it says that there were over 5,000 men there. What's interesting about that is the crowd was much likely much, much larger than that. Matthew actually adds that there were also women and children there. The 5,000 only applies to the men. If you just consider that maybe there were an equal number of women and maybe equal number of children, that would be at least 15,000. However, we know back in that day, families were significantly larger. Most families didn't just have one child. They had many children, many more than today. At a minimum, there were probably at least fifteen to 20,000 people all here that had come out to hear Jesus speak. And he's going to feed them at this point. I've tried to think about that today. If we were to look out here, how big of an area would we need to fit 20,000 people? If you can visualize that, that's what we're looking at here. Now, there are a number of unique things about this miracle. First off, it's the first event that we come to in Mark's Gospel that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's an important event. John chapter 6, verse 4. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me, John. Just keep your finger here in Mark, but turn to John chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. I've got the sniffles this morning. John chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. The reason I had you turn there is we see in John the reason why Jesus was about ready to do what he was going to do. John tells us that the feeding of the 5,000, you can go back to Mark, the feeding of the 5,000 was actually a test for the apostles. That's why Jesus did it. So prior to Jesus looking out at this crowd and realizing we're going to have to feed these people, he could have sent them home. He could have said, go buy your own food. You know, we're here at uh, 10.30 in the morning. We will finish up this morning about 11.30. We know you guys are all hungry, but we're not going to feed you. We're going to let you go and get your own food for lunch. Jesus could have done that. That would have been the normal thing to do. But instead, in his mind, he's thinking, I am going to test my apostles. And the way that I'm going to test them right now is to ask them, why don't you guys feed them? He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew they didn't have enough food. 
He knew that they didn't have enough fish. He knew it was going to require a miracle and that in some way that would now be used to test the apostles that are with him. We'll talk about this a little bit later. Keep that in the back of your mind. This leads to another unique aspect of this event. And that's the role of the twelve apostles. Generally, in most of the miracles, the apostles, the disciples, are witnesses only. They don't participate. They stand by and watch the master work. We see that over and over. However, in this particular episode, because he's using it to test and to teach the apostles, he now demands their participation in a number of ways. You remember in verse 37 of Mark chapter 6, he says, You give them something to eat. He knew what he was going to do, John says. Why didn't he just start it off? He wants their involvement. So he says, You give them something to eat. He also says in verse 37, How many loaves do you have? Go ahead and look. See what you brought with you. We know that they actually find another little boy that has food. The other thing that we see here is that when it came time to have the crowds break down into groups, he tells them all, another gospel says that that includes primarily the disciples, that what Jesus really did was he told the disciples, you go have them sit in hundreds and fifties. That would be understandable considering a group of probably 15 or 20,000 people. Jesus trying to scream at the top of his lungs might be a little difficult. So we have the disciples now walk among the people and start to break them down, instruct them. He made them participants. You go and you break them down. You have them sit in small groups here. Even when Jesus multiplied the bread in verse 41, it says, And he took the loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to who? He didn't set up a buffet line, have them start, have the crowds start walking through. Instead, he gave them to the disciples and had the disciples then take them out to the people and begin to feed the people in their groups. So as Jesus broke the bread and multiplied the bread, the disciples sat there and could see exactly what he was doing, but he gave it to them. He said, now take this out. Made them participants in this miracle. Even afterwards, when they finished, verse 43 here says... And they, that's a reference primarily to the disciples, and they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also the fish. Why is it that Jesus didn't have the people just pick it up and take it home with them? Instead, he had the disciples walk through the area. How long it might have taken them to pick up this much, don't know. But they were responsible for cleaning up the leftover food. And you'll see it a little bit later that the reason is Jesus wants them to see how much food is left over. Had he let the people just gather and take it themselves, it would have in some respects dampened the miracle. Instead, Jesus wants the disciples to see, because he's going to ask them later, how much did you collect? So that they might see the significance of what he had just done. He not only met the needs of the people, but went far above and beyond that, which is a good indication of who our Savior is and what he does for us. So another unique thing about this miracle was that Jesus involve them in the miracle itself. Why? Because he's trying to teach them something. It's a test for them. Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to go on to the second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Jump to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. I will read that as well. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd... Now notice he says, when there was again a large crowd, there are some that think that maybe the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 were the same event. They're not. They are two separate events separated by a period of time. 
This is not the same event. Partly because we know there's only 4,000, not 5,000 men at this one. But he says, in, there, in those days, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now think about this. They had already seen him feed 5,000 people. This is a smaller miracle. There's not quite as many people waiting to eat. So the bigger miracle now somehow didn't quite register that he can do something maybe similar to it that's not quite as big. So where are we going to find so much people, Jesus? Verse 5. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them, again, to his disciples. Okay, if you didn't get the first time, guys, we'll involve you in the second. So he had them serve the people, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they, the disciples, picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. So we find another miracle here feeding of the 4,000. It's very similar, obviously. There's some similar things that take place. But again, it's a separate event. This crowd size, again, if we do the math, probably looking at at least 12,000 to 15,000 minimum. Again, most likely, significantly more. Again, Jesus involves the disciples. He makes them serve the crowds. He performs the miracle right in front of them, and then he hands the bread to them. Somebody asked me not too long ago, why do you suppose Jesus did that? Why didn't he just hand the bread out to the people? Well, one, logistics... You know, but because again, he's involving the disciples, wants them to see exactly what he's doing and what better way to see it. Think about the people in the crowds. You get a crowd size that big, it's not easy to see what Jesus is doing, and he's doing it in his hands. Who are the ones that get to see the miracle take place? I often wonder what that must have looked like. He takes this bread, this loaf of bread, and he breaks it, hands it out, but all of a sudden he's got a loaf of bread in his hands. And he breaks it again, and he breaks it again, and he breaks it again. At some point you go, dude, that's pretty cool. And so he involves them in it, just like he did the first time. Initially he asked them, you feed them, how much do you have? And again, at the very end, he does what he did the first time. Go pick it up now. And they come back, wow, there's food left over. We have at least seven buckets of food here, left over. So again, we see with the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus does something unique in that he forces them to be involved and to participate with him. Because again, this is a test. This is something that he's using primarily to teach them. We would love to look at the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 and look at what the crowds must have thought, but the reality of it is the crowds probably just thought we just got fed. They probably didn't have a clue what Jesus had done. They wouldn't have been close enough to see it. Now, they may have recognized, there's something unique about this. Where did they get this much food? But the reality of it is, it isn't about the crowds. That's not why Jesus did it. This was specifically, according to John, a test for just the twelve that were with him. And obviously, now that we get to see it in hindsight, it's for us as well, is it not? So what's the main purpose of these two events? 
Mark gives us our first clue, the purpose of this event, in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. So turn back to chapter 6, verse 45. We're going to see another event here. We find within this event some insight. Chapter 6, verse 45. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, we see him walk on water. I'm going to read this to you, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, about the fourth watch, that's about three o'clock in the morning, he came to them, walking on the sea, and intended to pass them by. But when he saw them walking, I'm sorry, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now watch this. This is our first clue. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Why? For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Did you catch that? They were in this boat. They see Jesus walking across the water, doing something that no one should be able to do, and they are astonished. They're terrified by it. And he says, why were they terrified? Why were they astonished? Because they didn't figure out something from the feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't tell us what that is. But somehow they missed the lesson from the feeding of the 5,000. We'll see what that is in a little bit. Put that behind your ear like you would a pencil. Keep it there for just a moment. But the reality of it is they should have learned something from the feeding of the 5,000 and they didn't quite get it. Now in a little bit here, Jesus is going to call them out on that. We're going to look at the next small event. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 8, flip there, because this event now takes place after the feeding of the 4,000. And again, it gives us an idea of the purpose behind the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. This happens right after the feeding of the 4,000. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread. These are his disciples. They forgot to take some bread. And did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he said he was, or, and he was giving them orders, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. In other words, Jesus, we're trying to give him a lesson here. You've got to be careful with the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, oh, Jesus is probably upset because he only took one loaf of bread. How they made that connection, don't really know. Okay? So they start debating that. Verse 17, and Jesus was aware of this, and he said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Did you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Well, twelve. When I broke the seven for the five four thousand. 
how many large baskets full of broken pieces do you did you pick up? And he said, or they said, well, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? What's his point there? Remember, he's trying to teach them something through the event of the 5,000, through the event of the 4,000, and in both of these smaller miracles, through the first one, Mark says, they didn't quite get it. And then now Jesus calls them out specifically, guys, did you not learn something? You're sitting here arguing about not having enough bread. You're all concerned about your needs not somehow being met. Did you not get what I just did with the 5,000? Did you not get what I just did with the 4,000? Did you? Are your hearts hard? Why, how could you miss that? Now, we have a, a bit of a clue here that, in some respects, Jesus is saying, you're worried about being fed? I got 12 dudes in a boat with me, and you're thinking about not being fed because you didn't bring enough bread. Do you think I can handle that when I just fed at least 5,000? And I fed at least 4,000. Do you not think I can at least handle this? That's at least part of what's behind this. But there's something bigger here that we're missing with this as well. There's something else missing. I think it's this. There are four instances in the Old Testament. Remember, these are Old Testament Jews who are supposed to be intimately with, familiar with the God of the Old Testament. Remember Mark's purposes are to reveal Jesus Christ as Messiah and Jesus Christ as God. Okay? There are four very similar events to these in the Old Testament that involve the multiplication of food, specifically bread. Okay? I want to touch on these briefly here. Turn to Exodus chapter 16. I think this will all come into focus here. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Israelites are wandering through the desert, complaining because they don't have enough food. They're whining and complaining to Moses. So God says this, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to him, What would we, or would we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat? When we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I will test them, whether or not they will walk in my instructions. On the sixth day, when they receive or prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumbling against the Lord, and what you, uh, what you are we that you grumble against us. Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread for the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumbling, which you grumble against Him. Basically, what the Lord says is, I will multiply bread, manna, from heaven 
to feed you and to take care of your needs. That's the first event. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Jump down to verse 7. find the verses there. Okay, starting verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. In other words, they were facing a famine. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came there to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please, give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she was going to get it. He called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your servant lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. They were on the last bit of flour and oil, enough to make a single loaf of bread so that she could feed her son and herself, and that was it. And she fully expected because of the famine she would die. Verse 13, Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate For many days, the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. So what did God do there? He multiplied the bread over and over and over, miraculously, to meet her needs. Second example. Let's go to the third one. 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 1, we're starting in. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the, uh, the creditors have come to take away my two children to be his slaves. Back in that day, if you couldn't pay off your debt, sometimes you'd have to forfeit your children to go work off the debt. They would become somebody else's slaves. And so that's what this widow, <laughs> Dustin said he gets it, Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons, and you shall pour into all these vessels. You shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing in the vessels to her and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her sons, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one more vessel. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt that you and your sons can live off the rest. So here's this young widow 
has nothing except oil, can't pay off her debt, likely because her husband was now dead. And what does God do for her? He takes that little tiny jar of oil, all she's got left, and she's tells her, he tells her, go gather a bunch of other jars. Just go get them. So in faith, she does that. And he says, start pouring. So he takes a little jar of oil, starts pouring it into the bigger jar, and what happens? The oil keeps coming out. Tells her sons, I need another jar. So they get her another jar. She starts pouring from the small. What happens? Keeps coming out. Not just once, not just twice, but over and over and over. That oil keeps coming out of the small jar and multiplying miraculously to the point where they run out of jars. And when they get done, they not only had enough to sell, to pay off the debt, but to then live off of. So again, we see this God miraculously multiply. Now, the reason this is significant, it doesn't specifically mention bread in this passage, but oil was necessary for making bread. It was a means of eating. But not only that, it was a means of supporting herself because she could now sell the oil. So we have again our third example from the Old Testament where God multiplying a staple of some kind. Let's look at one last example. It's also in 2 Kings. It's in chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Jump down into verse 42. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. Now if you remember here, this is Elijah traveling with at least a hundred men. He's without food, needs something to eat, and so this man brings him out some bread. His attendant, verse 43, says, What will I set before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So this man basically brings 20 loaves of bread to feed a hundred men. That's not nearly enough to feed a hundred men. But he tells, Elisha tells the man, do it anyway, because the Lord was not only going to feed these 100 men with these 20 loaves of bread, but when they get done, there will be bread left over. Does that sound familiar? Verse 44, so they set it before the men, and they ate, and indeed they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Do you see a pattern here in the Old Testament? Can you imagine as a, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, knowing these stories, recognizing these stories where God, on multiple occasions, multiplied bread, met people's needs miraculously, whether they had what they needed or not, God did an amazing thing. So when we jump back to Mark, we see that twice... Jesus does exactly the same things that the God of the Old Testament does. What is it that the disciples should have seen? You know, word pictures in the Old Testament, they call them types sometimes, are specifically designed to teach us something. And so, sometimes these stories in the Old Testament have a deeper, more significant spiritual purpose and will become to be used at a later time. And Jesus does exactly that with the Old Testament. What he basically does is he specifically chose these two events where he would multiply bread as a way to trigger in the mind of the disciples 
just like God multiplied bread, fed people in need, I just did the same thing. And in essence, what Jesus has just done is revealed to his disciples that he's God. He has now associated himself with Yahweh. Remember, that's one of John's purposes. He starts off Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what Jesus is doing here, the lesson that the apostles are supposed to learn, is that, guys, I'm God. I'm God. You should see that, because I've just done what God did over and over and over again. But guess what, guys? Remember, Jesus said, did you not get it? Are your hearts hard? What's interesting about this is in a few weeks we'll study Jesus' confession where he says, you are the Messiah. But then we clearly see that he still doesn't quite get it. So what we have here are the disciples struggling to come to grips with that question of, who am I? Remember, this whole section we're in, from chapter 6 into chapter 8, is dealing with that question of, who do you say I am? Trying to get people to come to grips with, do you really understand and really see that I'm the Messiah, and that I'm the Son of God. And we can see here, even the people that were closest to Jesus, even the ones that had seen these things, the guys that sat right there, watched the bread multiply in their hands, should have been able to go, Elijah, remember what happened with Elijah? Remember with the widow and her son? Remember what God did? This is, this is Jesus must be, oh my gosh, look who, look who this... But they didn't get it. Says their hearts were hard. At some point they'll get it. Peter gets a little closer when we get into the end of chapter eight, and he, he says, you're the, "You're the Christ." He at least got that part, but he still didn't come to grips quite with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, it's not until the resurrection. In fact, for the Roman soldier, he sees Jesus on the cross and says, "This is surely the Son of God." It takes a Roman soldier, a non-Jew, to see that. But Peter and the rest of the disciples, it doesn't quite click that Jesus is the Son of God until after the resurrection. In fact, I was studying the transfiguration last night. And immediately after the transfiguration, you know, Peter, as he's standing there at the transfiguration, watching this, goes, oh, look, there's Moses and Elijah. Hmm, I should build some tabernacles here. Tabernacles? He just kind of wanted to, that's where you kind of do some worship and stuff. And so he's, but what that indicates is he doesn't quite get what's going on. This is now, I mean, at that moment it says Jesus was revealed. You have the voice of God coming out and saying, This is my son, obey him. You know, God made it about as abundant and as clear as he could possibly make it. But then, not too much later, Peter seems to still be struggling with the concept of this is the Son of God in the flesh until after. The resurrection. That might be why Jesus at that point in the transfiguration says, don't tell anybody what you saw yet. And the reason is, if they would have been telling people what they saw, when they didn't really understand what they saw, Jesus said, wait until I raise from the dead. Then tell people what you saw. Why? Because then they'd understand. And they'd be able to communicate accurately. We saw the Son of God revealed. They didn't understand that at the point of the transfiguration. Again, that'll be for a couple of weeks. But what we see here is that Jesus had something he was trying to teach the disciples, and it has everything to do with Mark's purpose. This is the Son of God. 
And that's what Jesus expected them to get from the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, but because there were hearts, they didn't quite see it. So what does that do for us? How does this apply to us? Maybe not so much in that same concept, meaning, I look around the room today, and I'm pretty confident that most of you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Probably all of you. If you don't, don't have to raise your hand. You can talk to me afterwards. Obviously, that's a joke, right? But, do you think we ever struggle with what Jesus tries to teach us? We have seen amazing things, have we not? Think about your own life and what God has done in your own life. And yet, do you ever find yourself still struggling with some things? I think about the number of times that God has allowed me to go through trials, as James says, and yet I face a trial and I begin to worry, I begin to struggle. Or I get frustrated. Why is this going on? And it's oftentimes because the heart is hard. I just don't see what he really wants me to see. Because if I did, I wouldn't struggle with those things, right? You know? You go through a trial and you begin to worry, you begin to fear, you begin to doubt. Why? If you looked back at what Jesus has done, there should be no fear or anxiety. We should be able to go, wow, I have nothing to worry about. But what do we do? We still, we're like the disciples. We're like the guys in the boat worrying, oh, don't have enough fish. We're going to starve. Really? Didn't you just see me? I can take care. You need bread? I can make the, give me the loaf. You know what? I'll, I'll feed you here. But instead, they're all worried about it. So I think from a practical standpoint, maybe the disciples kind of reflect us sometimes. That maybe we just don't always learn the lessons that Jesus has intended for us. Maybe we still worry and doubt and, you know, sometimes maybe it's theological things. Maybe it's stuff we see in the scriptures we're not really sure if we can accept it when it's all there in black and white. And we haven't learned that, boy, everything else I see there is right, I can trust this. Or maybe it's, again, the trials we go through or the difficulties we face. Those times where Jesus expects us to simply step out on faith and maybe it's a little more difficult for us. When yet, he's proven every other single time in our lives that we can do that. That we can step out in faith. We can do it. And what's the cause of that? Well, Jesus tells us here with the disciples, it's just a hard heart. Now, I imagine you're sitting there and you might be thinking, well, my heart's not hard. The concept of a hard heart simply has to do with not always trusting. Just not always stepping out on faith. Relaxing in the grace and the mercy and the hope that we have in Christ doesn't mean that we're necessarily wicked and evil. Our hearts are hard. And that's not really what he intended here with the disciples. What he basically was saying is, you just haven't seen it yet. You just haven't relied on me. You just haven't trusted me with this. And so I think, again, the challenge for us is probably along that vein. You may have some other things that God does with your heart with this passage. But I know for me personally, it reflects me pretty well. I'm just like those disciples hanging out in the boat, arguing about the fish, worrying about this or that. But if I just stopped and I asked myself, what have I learned? What has God really taught me in the past? What am I not seeing here with this? Which means when we face trials and difficulties, instead of worrying and fearing about it, maybe we ought to be saying, what has God taught me in the past and what is he going to teach me with this? What's his purpose in this? What am I supposed to learn through all this? And seeking out what God has done.